Father, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning. Please help us at the start of January, at the start of this new year, to grapple with and see the implications of some of the ideas we're going to be thinking about. We pray that you would give us a clarity that comes from you. And we pray that these things would be profoundly practical, shaping how we think and how we live. For your glory we pray. Amen. So as Richard was saying, it's a new series, and for the first few weeks then in this next year, we're going to be thinking hard about what it means, what it means to be human and why that really matters. And I want to begin the whole thing, begin this morning, by just giving you a number of news stories that have come over the last few years, just to try and begin to get to grips with the importance and the confusion that's out there in the world about what it means to be a person, what it means to be human. So 2011, first one. There have been a number of similar ones recently. But 2011, at the Queen Mother Hospital in Margate, Kent, there was a man called Andrew Waters in his mid-50s. He visited the hospital for a few, year, for a few weeks um, for reasons related to his dementia. Um, he also had Down syndrome. He later left the hospital fine, but, but in his bag was found a folded note of paper. And it turned out it was his do-not-resuscitate order. The thing was, his family didn't know about this, and he didn't know about this. The family had visited every day. They'd been, not been consulted about this DNR, do not resuscitate order. And yet one of the reasons that the medical staff gave for, for writing it and for signing it and for giving it to him was because he had Down syndrome. Similar vein, 2014, the, um, the, the eminent scientist Richard Dawkins lit the fuse as he famously often does on Twitter, by saying in his framework, if a pregnant mother was found she was carrying a baby with Down syndrome, he said it would be immoral not to abort the child because of the quality of their life. And then he sought to justify it because he said, well, that's basically what happens. And he's, he's right. About 75% of pregnancies with a positive screening for Downs will be terminated. Well, how about this one related to Mary Beth's interview? This was very striking. Last summer, news was rife with pictures and stories and ideas and images of thousands of, of Syrian refugees fleeing. Something very interesting happened in August. Because it seems that we woke up and remembered that these people are people. And it came after a, an interview with David Cameron. He described the refugees. Do you remember? It? He described the refugees in Calais. He said, it's a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean seeking a better life. And actually then very quickly the accusations came saying, well, you've dehumanized these people. You've called them a swarm. That's language of animals, unwanted pests, statistics. And so the papers reacted. One editorial said, our species is naturally empathetic. It's only when we strip the humanity from people, when we stop imagining them as being quite human like us, that our empathetic nature is eroded. What does it mean to be human? What is the value of a person? There'll be many more examples in weeks to come. We'll be thinking about planned parenthood, for example, in the US, or debates over euthanasia and assisted suicide everywhere. 
But for now, just note that it's a difficult topic. There are hard questions that we're asking, and there is fundamentally a confusion about the nature of what it means to be a person, what it means to be human in our worlds. Who are you? Who am I? Does a human have value or worth or dignity? And why does a human have value or worth or dignity? Is it something inherent given to us or is it something we have to earn? Are some people more valuable than other people? Are you a what? Or are you a who? And why is that? And who gets to decide? At the moment, it, it strikes me that people aren't sure about these things. There is a huge confusion. There's inconsistency. And that plays out in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of situations, as those, some of those news stories have shown. I, I want to say that, to some extent, this is a, an issue of the last few decades. Here's the thing. Much of Western society, much of societies all around the world were founded and based upon Judeo-Christian principles and presuppositions. That's pretty much universally acknowledged across the board. Here's um, the secular humanist philosopher Luke Ferry, who wrote in his book, A Brief History of Thought. He said this. Can you see? He said, Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. And the benefits of this Judeo-Christian heritage, which is seen all around the world, is huge. Individuals are valued and seen as having worth. And primarily, that's come from a belief in God. That truth, in fact, underpins national constitutions. Um, the Irish Constitution of 1937 explicitly states it. it the preamble begins, in the name of the most holy trinity from whom all authority and to whom as our final end all actions both of men and states must be referred. It's explicit. Because of God, so these laws matter, so people matter, the Irish Constitution says. Well, 1948, United Nations, Universal Declaration on Human Rights. God is not mentioned explicitly there. But the idea that dignity is something inherent in every single person comes from him. Let me read again. Recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Did you see, because of our Judeo-Christian heritage, so dignity and worth was seen as a given for people. And that was such a good thing, but but now it seems to me that is just being eroded in the West. That is not there anymore. As we've again done away with God, so these underpinning truths are being questioned. Truths of society and culture are, are laws. And as the example showed, we're in a bit of a mess. When you remove God from the equation, how do you decide how much someone is worth? Whether someone is worth something. Is it just about £100, which would be the cost of the constituent chemicals that make us up? Is that how much you're worth? Is that what you would go for on eBay? It is value, worth and dignity from how useful you are. And how do you decide if someone is useful? 
Is it how much money you have? Is it in financial terms? Academic terms? Is it how clever you are? We just get rid of the kind of lowest quarter, maybe? Or social status, the rank of someone? Their genetics, their family background? Is it the quality of their life? Is it even the color of their skin? How you decide if somebody is worth something when God is removed from the equation, I think it's helpfully said that sometimes people talk of us living in a a cut flower society. So Europe or the West, like a beautiful plant in a vase, we've we've been snipped off from our roots. We've been snipped off from God as the foundation of society. And so perhaps we're still beautiful, but the wilting has begun and we will continue to wilt. There's There's a fact that we're living in the legacy of the past. Perhaps it's just a matter of time. And so the plan for these next few weeks is to work through some of these difficult concepts, thinking about what it means to be made in God's image, and then working through how this applies into all kinds of areas of practical life, daily life for us. How we should think about image and identity, for example. Or the fact that we're, we're relational and community beings, or, or marriage and gender and complementarity, or, or life and worth. Or how we're to rule and steward creation, or what it means to be fruitful and creative. And usually for us, we're going to be more topical these first few weeks of this year. Rather than working through a book or a section of a book, we'll be taking a particular idea each week this foundational thing of what it means to be in God's image, and then applying it through from different passages in the Bible. We're going to get into it for this week. Please do open Genesis 1 with me. I'm going to read again verse 26 to 28. I think they are crucial verses for us to be familiar with. So let me read. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So up to this point in the story, it's been good. God has made by his words, and it was good. And then comes the pinnacle, the, the very good. Man and woman made as two sexes, made as the culmination, the, the climax, the icing on the cake but still as part of creation, like what has come before, made by God, but unlike what has come before, made in the image of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, for now, just two words to help us begin to get our minds around that. Being in God's image means responsibilities, and it means relationships responsibilities the responsibility he gives his people is that we are to rule over creation for him the technical term if you want to impress your friends at dinner parties is is vice-gerent 
It's one exercising delegated power on behalf of a sovereign or a ruler. So God is God. We are under him, looking after, ruling, subduing his creation. We're to work at it, to take care of it. We're to be custodians and stewards and we're to cause it to be fruitful, to cause it to function, to cause it to work. That's doing all the kinds of things that many of you do each week. Whether you're in education or healthcare or justice or working in the public sector and sorting out our roads or or designing or building and constructing or or communications or creativity and art and culture and music or, or shaping and forming, bringing up the next generation. That those are dignified things because they are a God given task. They're the responsibility He gives His people, part of what it means to be made in God's image. But more than that, it entails relationships as well. Do you see that from Genesis 1? It's it's as if, verse 27, it's as if men and women are both required to complete the image. That's striking. Notice that God speaks in the plural. Let us make man in our image. What's what's going on there? We say, surely God is one. Surely. What's happening? Different theories. Ancient Hebrew scholars would would talk of God addressing the angels in their kind of heavenly courtroom, but but I'm not sure there's evidence of angels being involved in creation. Some have said, well, maybe it's kind of the royal we, the the way the queen speaks. But again, there's not much evidence of Hebrew using the royal we in those terms. Of course, you couldn't possibly come with a fully-fledged doctrine of the Trinity from this verse, but, but there's certainly some sort of internal deliberation going on within the Godhead. In the mind of God, he's having a conversation with himself. Maybe it's the first sign of God the Father speaking to God the Son in perfect communion together. To be in the image of God means to be in relationship, in community, both sexes together in his image. So responsibilities and relationships. That's something of what it means to be in God's image. It means at least these things, but it doesn't mean only these things. We'll see that week on week as things develop and expand. And the outline is coloured in. But for now, just cling on to the fact that God made man and woman in his image, and that gives us an inherent, foundational, extreme dignity. By dignity, we mean some, something or someone being worthy or, of honor or respect, having value, having worth. And this is the bedrock for how we're to understand people, humans, who we are. From the highest levels of society to the very lowest, from the youngest to the oldest, all around the world, regardless of language or skin colour or ethnic group or nationality or, or backgrounds, or track records. We have a dignity because we're made in God's image. Of course, the problem is, as Mary Beth read to us, Genesis 1 slides into Genesis 3. And that's a profoundly important passage. So I'm going to read it again from chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. And we'll see the, the way that sin shatters this image. 
As I read it, I want you to, to notice what the nature of the sin is. Okay, look out for that as I read verse 1 to 6 again of chapter 3 of Genesis. Now, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for the food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You see, as Adam and Eve... As Adam and Eve walk out on God doing what they want to do rather than living under his good rule, rather than taking the responsibility that they were given, so in a sense the image is shattered. The relationships are ruined and responsibilities are ruined because we do away with God. Fundamentally, the pattern is still there. The image is still there. But it's broken. Some people de describe it as being like a... Um, like a 20 pound note. Thank you, Mary Beth, by the way. <laughs> its worth is objective and unalterable, whether it is brand new and crisp and clean and perfect, freshly printed, never used before, whether it's soiled, whether it's crumpled, whether the, your children have been salivating on it, whether dogs have been chewing it, whether it's been sneezed on, it is still worth 20 pounds. And even, I find out, if it's completely ripped, if it's destroyed, you can still send it back to the Bank of England and they will replace it for you. Its worth does not come from how new it is or what condition it is and how pristine the note is. It's worth something because somebody else has assigned a worth to it. That does not change. While so with humanity... We are worth something because God has assigned a worth to us, because we're made in his image. Not because of how pristine or amazing we are, or we aren't. But do you notice the nature of sin from chapter 3? I think it's really important for us this morning, because I think it actually begins to answer some of the questions of where there's a new dignity coming. And we see where it comes from in chapter 3. So Adam and Eve sinned, you see it in verse 5, it was because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to take his role, they wanted to seek after his position. What did, the, what did the serpent say? For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Okay, and here's the thing I think that's happening in the world at the moment with this concept of dignity. We're just repeating verse 5 again. That is what is happening. What do I mean by that? In society, dignity is not being found in being created in God's image, in being under God. But rather, dignity people are finding is from being like God, taking his role, snatching authority from him. Dignity comes from people choosing whether they can decide what right and wrong is. They get to push the boundaries. Let me read to you from a... Um, a Princeton philosopher, definitely not a Christian, a guy called George Kateb. 
um, from the US, he says this. He says, since nature has no end, the human species is at its greatest when it breaks out of nature. What's he saying? He's saying we're at our greatest when we push the boundaries, when we break out of the limitations and shackles of our nature and who we are, when we decide for ourselves, we might say, when we get to play God. Dignity is coming from pushing the boundaries. Another journalist, American journalist, Roberta Green Armanson, puts it very starkly, and it's a long quote, and I've toyed with her to include it all, but I want to, so it's striking. Please try and soak in. I read it slowly, but please try and see what she's saying. I think this is at the crux of the problem. She says this, The new dignity demands new positive freedoms. Freedoms to, to remake our gender, freedoms to marry someone without regard to sex or the procreative potential of the union, freedoms to choose our time to die and enlist the medical profession in ending our lives, freedoms to not only abort a child developing in the womb, but also to harvest his or her body parts for commercial gain. It also calls for new negative freedoms, freedoms from, she says, freedoms from all unwanted pain or discomfort, from limitations on what I can do with my body, from language or ideas that offend me or that challenge decisions I have made. She says this, dignity is no longer so much about who or what we are. It is about what our unfettered will can do. Isn't that extraordinary? Extraordinary paragraph, isn't it? It seems to me it's at the very nature of sin. We want to be God, to take his role. We want to decide what is right and wrong. We want to rewrite the laws he set in place for us. As, as we consider matters of, of life and death, as we consider matters of gender and marriage, isn't it just a rewriting of Genesis 1 and 2? Isn't it where we get to decide rather than him? As George Kateb would say, isn't that just when we're at our greatest, when we're pushing the boundaries from what we've been made to be? So rather than finding our, our dignity, our value, our worth as something beautiful and God-given for us, something in being like him, it's coming from something snatched, stolen, taking his role. We seek to take God's place. It's always been the temptation for humans. We, we rub him out, we get rid, and then we decide to write our own laws. And when we get to be like him, then people are finding dignity there. It's not coming from God, it's seeking to be like God. And it's absurd, because we weren't made for that. And it will crush us. It's why there is so much confusion and inconsistency. So either flower in the vase is wilting. So there are some of the foundations for this series. I promised it would be a bit different. It probably leaves you with loads of questions, things to chew over, ideas to grapple with. I'd encourage you towards patience and to say, where do we go from here? I want to say two things as we finish, and forgive me, please, for leaving, leaving it to the end, but we need to see the importance of Christ and how he changes things. How does Jesus change our thinking about image? 
So Genesis 3, we saw the image was broken, shattered, marred. But as MB read for us in Colossians 1, he, Jesus is the image of God, the true image. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the true image. He is the beautiful one where we are broken and shattered and marred and confused and not quite sure where we find dignity. He is the perfect image. It means, for example, at Christmas, when he takes on flesh, it reveals afresh to us something of the dignity and the value of humanity. It reminds us that God cares about people. One article these past few weeks put it like this, human beings have worth because we are valued by a God who took on flesh and entered our world and shared our experiences, love, joy, compassion and intimate friendships, anger, sorrow, suffering and tears. For Christians, God is not distant or detached. He is a God of wounds. The incarnation reinforces the dignity of humanity and God's love for us. Christ is the restored image. But secondly, more than that, in Christ we are being restored. The New Testament talk, talks about this in at least two ways. The first one, we will be transformed into his perfect likeness. Romans 8 verse 29 says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's a complicated verse, but I take it primarily that is a future thing. In the future, it will be a reality that we are perfectly conformed into the image of Jesus. That totally broken and shattered and marred image will be perfected again because we are in Christ. In a sense, it's a truth by faith now, but it will be reality then. Perfected forever. So it's a future reality, but it's a present experience as well. We are being transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So do you see, as we treasure him and contemplate him and and think on Christ, reflect upon his glory, now we are actually becoming like that one that we treasure. We're becoming like him, more like Christ. We're being increasingly transformed into his image now. You see it in godly seasoned saints. You have a lifetime on ref reflecting on Christ. A lifetime of sanctification and growth. And you just sense something of Christ in them. So we're being transformed into Christ-likeness now. 
I love the way, as you read the Gospels, you see how Jesus valued people, all kinds of people, the kinds of people that were not valued, the kinds of people that everyone else ignored. It's my prayer as we wrestle through these ideas week by week and in this series and for a lifetime that he would transform us increasingly into Christ's image and so we would value people as Christ did. That he would work in us and then work through us. Because these things matter profoundly because our society is so confused. Because they don't know why people matter. It's important that we have clarity when the world increasingly doesn't have clarity. Let me finish this first sermon with a paragraph from John Stott. I think he sums it up very well as to why this matters so much. He says this, When human beings are devalued, everything in society turns sour. Women are humiliated and children despised. The sick are regarded as a nuisance and the elderly as a burden. Ethnic minorities are discriminated against. The poor are oppressed and denied social justice. Criminals are brutalized in the prisons. But when human beings are valued as persons because of their intrinsic worth, everything changes. Men, women and children are all honored. The sick are cared for, the elderly enabled to live and die with dignity. Dissidents are listened to, prisoners rehabilitated, minorities protected and the oppressed are set free. Workers are given fair wages, decent working conditions. And the gospel is taken to the ends of the earth. Why, he says? Why? Because people matter. Because every man, woman and child has worth and significance as a human being. Made in God's image and in his likeness. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a minute or two of silence before I pray, just thinking through perhaps where some of these things matter to you in your life, or your thinking, or this coming week. Perhaps the kind of people we find it hard to value because we've forgotten they're made in God's image. We pray for a confused, inconsistent world that's walked out on you, cut off from you. And we long that you would intervene. We long that you would restrain evil. We long that you would protect the vulnerable. We long that you would bring justice. We long that you would put people in leadership who value others because of an inherent value and worth that they see as coming from you. We pray for ourselves. We pray that you would help us afresh to grasp the value of human life. Forgive us for not treating people as people made in your image. We find these things profoundly challenging and so we we pray that you would help us to think clearly, 
We pray that you would change the way that we live, that we might value others because they're made in your image. We pray that you would help us to give people the dignity that they deserve because they're made in your image. And we pray that you would help us to act upon these things, whatever that might look like. Whether that's speaking to MPs, whether that's making a change in our daily life, whether that's changing how we lead and manage others, how we consider those in our lives, perhaps who we see as a nuisance or a difficulty. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is, he is the restored image your perfect likeness. Thank you that he is the image of the invisible God. We thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for him taking on flesh. I thank you that as we trust in him and you find us in him, So one day we will be perfectly conformed to his image. But daily we are being transformed as we contemplate his glory. Our Father, we give you, we give you permission, if you need it, to be at work in us as individuals and as a church. Change us, we pray, for your glory and for our good. Amen.